Our text will be Revelation chapter 5, and we'll be focusing on just the first half of verse 6. Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, last Lord's Day, we considered the Lord Jesus as God's appointed mediatorial king. We saw that he had been prophesied from ancient times, that in his incarnation and in his life and earthly ministry, he established his kingdom upon the earth. He conquered death and Satan in his own death and resurrection. And in light of that, he has been given the authority to unroll the scroll of redemptive history for the sake of his church. This scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, encompasses everything that will take place between the first and second advents of our Lord. And remember that everything that is that happens happens for the good of the church. This is God's mission on the earth now until the time of Christ's return is the growth and expansion and prosperity of the church. And we saw all this from the words of the elder speaking to John in verse 4 or verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, that is, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now we get, when we read this, we get images in our head, not only from the scriptures and information from the scriptures, but also pictures. We hear these words, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, remember, who was a powerful and dominating, conquering king. If we wanted to go back to the the origin of this reference to the line of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49-9, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? We can obviously picture the prey has been caught by the claws and strangled by the jaws of the lioness, and now the pride Male, the lion of Judah, the alpha of the pack, lays on his belly at rest, and his face is dripping with the blood of his supper. That's the image that we're given. This is what John heard. Now, as we transition to the next verse, we move into what John sees. And remember that the revelation was a vision given by the Father to the Son to give his servants. Uh, and so what we see, or what John sees, clarifies what he heard. It's not the other way around. This was not an audiobook. It was a vision. So the things that John sees open up and expand and clarify what he heard. So he heard, behold, look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And now, verse 5 Chapter 5, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw. So now we are clued in as to what John saw. And it says that he saw a lamb standing. Now this is not the typical word that's used for a lamb in the New Testament. It's only used one other time outside of the book of the Revelation, and that's in John 21, 15, when Christ told Peter, Feed my 
lambs. Now we know that famous, or, or sheep rather, sheep are famous for their timidity and their weakness. They cannot defend themselves. Uh, if they are left unattended, they are extremely vulnerable. Well, here we meet a lamb, which is a young sheep. When we picture this sheep, we don't have to imagine uh, a sheep so tiny that we could cradle it in our arms. This is not a newborn sheep. The sacrificial lambs, remember, were a year old, which in sheep years would be about 18 years old, a young adult lamb. This lamb is standing as though it had been slain. In its appearance, as John looked at it, it looked like it had already been killed. Now, we would, if we try to picture this, a lamb having been slain, we don't picture it standing, but this lamb is standing. So it's not, not laying down, it's standing. What could we imagine that John saw that gave him this idea that it had already been slain? For me, personally, I imagine that there was an incision at the throat and probably some blood stains on its wool. Now we recognize, hopefully, that the image of the slain lamb goes back a long time, most clearly and explicitly to the first Passover, when the children of Israel left Egypt. Remember the death angel was coming to bring upon the Egyptians the final plague, they were warned that the firstborn of every household would, that would die unless they took a lamb that could be from the sheep or from the goats, separated it unto themselves for four days, and then killed it. The blood was to be put on the doorposts of the house. Its flesh was to be eaten. Whatever was not eaten was to be burned. And as the angel of the Lord passed over the or through the land of Egypt, it would pass over the houses with the blood on the door. And in those homes, the firstborn was slain. So you, you understand the picture. The slain lamb took the place of, was the substitute for, the firstborn sons. Moving forward, we know that lambs were used extensively in the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. Jumping forward again, remember that John the Baptist, on his first sight of the Lord Jesus said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is, look, here is God's Lamb, the Lamb that God has provided. It's no longer uh, up to us to go out and to select our own Lamb. God has provided the Lamb, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see these, this sort of very broad, redemptive, historical usage of a lamb. In the Passover, the death of a lamb ensured the living exodus from bondage in Egypt. John the Baptist asserts that Christ was the Lamb of God, come to set his people free from bondage to sin. And now at the very end of the canon, the book of the Revelation, we see that same Lamb of God, and he's already endured the death. He's fulfilled the type. He has conquered through his death to open the scroll. So in spite of being described as a lion, the Lord Jesus Christ is shown as a lamb. Now this doesn't negate or do away with the images given to us in the usage of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It doesn't do away with his kingly power or his dominion. 
But it reminds us that the victory of the Lord Jesus was achieved in a very peculiar manner, and that is his obedience unto death. He conquered, but he didn't conquer like you would imagine a lion conquering. He conquered through his death. And so a vulnerable, defenseless lamb that had already gone to the slaughter is the picture given by the Father to the Son to reveal to John so that John could write it down and send it out to the servants of Christ so that they would be comforted in their affliction. This ought to be a comfort to the saints. Our Lord, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, stood as a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, all of that being said by way of exposition, we asked, then, what, what could we learn from this? The Lamb, used as a, a type or a shadow of Christ throughout the Scripture, is meant to convey to us many things. Uh, as I've already alluded to, the, the fulfillment of the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant. But I want to drill down on one specific uh, trait of the Lord Jesus that's shown to us in the usage of the Lamb, and that is His meekness his meekness I would assert that the lamb image shows us or teaches us we could say reminds us of the meekness of our king or to put it another way the lamb epitomizes in the animal kingdom the human virtue of meekness which characterizes our reigning Lord. In Matthew chapter 11, the Lord Jesus spoke of his, his meekness. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's our word. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That word gentle, as it's translated in the ESV, is the word that's often translated meek. But I would suggest to you, meekness is more than being gentle. And to prove that, I would point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul makes an appeal to the meekness of Christ, and he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness, there's our word, and gentleness of Christ. Now that word meekness is the same word that's translated gentle in Matthew 11, but here it is laid side by side with gentleness. And that's a different word. So they're not the same word. Now Paul makes an appeal to the meekness of Christ here, and that shows us that this trait of the Lord was unquestionable. It was beyond doubt. Everyone knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was a meek man. You don't appeal to attributes that, that are doubted or, or debated. You appeal to something that everyone agrees upon. The meekness of the Lord Jesus was agreed upon by all. So what is meekness? It's more than being gentle. Oftentimes the word might be translated humble or humility, but it's more than being humble. To prove that, I would appeal to Numbers chapter 12, 
verses 1 to 3, where we have a reference to Moses, who is, we are told here, the meekest man on the earth. It says in Numbers 12, 1 to 3. Now try to get this picture in your head, because this, this text doesn't just lay out for us a definition of, the, of meekness. We have to sort of read between the lines as, and discern what's happening. Numbers 12, beginning at verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Now notice the, the train of thought in this narrative. Miriam and Aaron were speaking against Moses. There's, it says, the Lord heard it. Then we jump immediately to the meekness of Moses. He's meek, more meek than all the people on the face of the earth. And then we jump straight back to the narrative. God shows up and begins to address the situation with Aaron and Miriam. Now why does this passage flow that way? Well, this narrative teaches us something about meekness. Moses, the meekest man on the earth, was making no effort to even address the situation. He felt no need. It's almost like he showed almost no concern for the fact that, his, that these two were challenging him and speaking against him. Now, he certainly could have addressed the situation. He had every right to. He had the authority to. God had called him to this position. But he didn't. And it's in that text, in this passage, that we learn that Moses was more meek than all the people who were on the face of the earth. One more passage that we'll look at, I think, helps us here because we might just read that narrative and think that meekness, in addition to being gentle or humble, means that you simply allow yourself to be a doormat for other people and you just lay back and allow people to trample all over you and never defend yourself, never say anything. And that's, there's, that's not true. Psalm 37, the entire psalm, shows us over and over in almost every verse little portraits and perspectives of this idea of meekness. In verse 11 of Psalm 37, it says, The meek shall inherit the land. But back in verse 9, it said, Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In, in Psalm 37, those who wait for the Lord are the meek. It's the same group of people. Meekness is not being a doormat. Meekness is not being timid or fearful. It's more than being gentle. It's more than being humble. Meekness is not weakness. Here we see that meekness has some connection with waiting upon the Lord. And you can read the rest of that psalm. It carries with it the idea of trusting in the Lord, relying upon the revelation of God. So here's my definition. It's short. It could be expounded upon greatly. It's not going to find its way in, into any theological dictionaries anytime soon, but here's how I would define meekness. Calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God 
in his time and in his manner to deal justly in all things. I'll say it again. Calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God in his time and in his manner to deal justly in all things. One who is meek is someone who is calm. They're not boiling beneath the surface. It's not as though if we look back at the narrative, Moses didn't say anything to Miriam and Aaron, but underneath the surface he was furious. That's not so. He was calm. One who is meek is selfless. In their actions, they, they're, they're not attempting to display their humility or show off how humble they are. They are almost ignoring themselves. They're, they're not concerned with defense of self for the sake of self or for self's sake only. One who's meek is resigned to the providence and prerogative of God. They know that God works all things for the good of His people. They know that God has the prerogative, that is the divine right, to do as He pleases in every situation, in His time and in His manner. When He wants, how He wants. A meek person understands that God is in complete control and that God will, de will deal justly in all things. God is just. God will always do right. And that's not passive. A meek person doesn't just have to sit back and say, well, someday justice will be rendered. There is a sense in which that is true. Ultimate justice will finally be rendered. But a meek person understands that even now, God is actively working out all things for the good of his people. And he's doing so in justice. His, his, the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. This is how he, he reigns. Now, I'll let you be the judge as to whether or not that would seem to fit the attitude of Moses in the narrative about him. Calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God in his time and in his manner to deal justly in all things. A person who's meek is not arrogant. They're not prideful. They're not self-promoting or self-advancing. One who's meek doesn't feel the need to put themselves forward or to constantly squirm to the front of the, the crowd to be seen. One who's meek would be willing to endure affliction with patience and without resentment. Why? Because they trust that God is dealing justly. They are confident in God and even more specifically in the revelation of God. Now as we begin to think about this, we have to understand that there's a difference between being meek and not having a legitimate means of being otherwise. Like a lamb, we could also consider a, a worm. You pick up a worm and do with it as you please. You wouldn't say, boy, that worm is meek. A baby is the same way. They are completely helpless. You can, you can do with a baby as you will, and they're not going to fight back. You wouldn't say, well, that's a meek child. A, a worm, a baby, a lamb, these things are acting according to their nature. They're not meek. They have no option except to be dealt with passively. A lamb, as used in our text, simply displays a meekness. 
But that's only because that's its nature, to look that way. A lamb isn't actually meek. A worm isn't actually meek. A baby isn't actually meek. That's just their nature, to be passive. But men like Moses and the Lord Jesus, they can actually show forth the spirit of meekness because in their case, they had a status worthy of being put before men, worthy of being honored, worthy of being revered. They had something in them that could have been other than meek, but they chose, rather, to defer themselves into the hand of God. So a lamb standing as though it had been slain is the ultimate symbol of meekness. Not only is it resigned, as it is the nature of a lamb to be this way, but it shows that it, it's already been in the past at some point slain, completely delivered over into the hands of someone else and dealt with violently. The Lamb reveals to us that our Lord Jesus is meek, that He calmly, selflessly resigned Himself to the providence and prerogative of God to deal justly in all things in His time and His manner. And is this not exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23? When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. When Christ was reviled, he could have immediately turned the reviling back on his mockers in perfect justice and been true in everything that he said, but he didn't. As he suffered, did he not have the authority to turn and to threaten those who persecuted him with eternal destruction? Of course he did, but he didn't. He calmly, selflessly resigned himself the providence and prerogative of God to deal justly in all things in his time and in his manner. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now if Moses was the meekest man on earth in his day, surely we could conclude the Lord Jesus to be the most perfect embodiment of meekness to ever walk the earth. Moses pointed to Christ. He was a shadow. He was a vapor in comparison to the meekness of our Lord. Now what I want to do for the remainder of our time is, is I want you, with your Bible in hand, to walk with me through the Gospels. And I want to look at various scenes in the Gospels which display the meekness of Christ, some flavor, some aspect of His meekness. And my goals here is, first and foremost, that we would learn of Christ. I want you to see Him in action. Secondly, in learning of Him, we need to learn to mimic Him. If we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, and that through sanctification, and sanctification, a, a synergistic work in which we cooperate by the strength of God's Spirit with Him in His conforming us to Christ, then we need to have some kind of picture in our mind as to what we're striving after. We need to have a picture in our mind of the Son of God. And thirdly, hopefully this exercise will, will help you to learn how to study the person and work of Christ. We know that in reading the scriptures, it's not appropriate to read ourselves into the text. But we can read and attempt to discern 
how Christ is thinking and acting, why he's doing what he's doing. Put ourselves in these situations and ask, what would I do? What, what was going through his mind when he said this, when he did this, when he went here, when he went there? Why did he do that? Because everything that he says is perfect. It's all wise. Everything that he does is perfect. It's all wise. There's a reason behind it. And so that's what I want to do. But this is, again, not an exhaustive list, but there are several passages that I think really help us to see, again, various aspects of his meekness. The first is in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 30. Matthew 9, 30, Christ has just healed two blind men, and it says their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now we notice here his power. He asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said yes, and then he does it. He re clearly reveals that he has the power to perform this miracle, but then we see his privacy. He had no need to be known for this power. And we'll see more of these in a minute. But he, he, wasn't, he wasn't coaxing advertisements out of people. He didn't heal people and then hand out a t-shirt that said, Healed by Jesus, so that slowly but surely over the course of three years, you've got people all over the land of Judea wearing I, I Was Healed by Jesus t-shirts to spread his fame. He commanded silence. He wanted secrecy. Now, can you imagine if a man in our day had this kind of power? It wouldn't have to be miraculous power. Maybe it's financial power. We've all heard the phrase, right? You can't hide money. It's almost like it's an impossibility for somebody in our society to have any amount of, of financial wealth and power and not show it in their clothing, in their automobiles, in their homes, in their landscaping at their house, in their, their food choices. They can't hide it. They advertise their power in everything that they do. We could go to the other extreme and just imagine a man with some physical strength. We, we all know the guy who's decided that he's going to start working out and so he starts going to the gym and, and finds out that he likes going to the gym. It's something that he enjoys. He does it more and more often. His physique begins to change. Muscles begin to grow. And it, it's like he, it's not possible for him to wear clothes that fit normally anymore. All of a sudden, his wardrobe changes, but it changes for the worse. Everything is done to display his muscles, to show off that he works out, that he's strong. He's got a Planet Fitness sticker on the back of his car. Everybody has to know that this man is, is strong. He, he's a walking and talking advertisement for himself, but not Christ. Not Christ. He didn't care if his fame spread. He entrusted himself to the providence of God. He knew that his Father would glorify him. That's why he could pray, Father, glorify me in your presence. Another one. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now remember, John had paved the way for Christ. John done no miracles. When he saw Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now he sits in prison. He had heard about the deeds. But then he questions. Are you the one who is to come? Now men, imagine that you're at work, assuming you have a job, that you've, you've been there for some time, you've learned the ropes, you know what you're doing, especially if you have uh, spent a lot of time in a particular type of trade and you've gotten good at that trade. Imagine that a man comes off the street and walks in and watches, sees what you're doing and he says, do you have any idea what you're doing? Now, while we might be able to restrain ourselves, what, what would well up inside your mind? I would almost guarantee that inside your mind you would be thinking, this man is a fool. This, of course I know what I'm doing. How could he come into my place of work? I've got my tools. I'm clearly dressed for the job. I'm performing the work itself. And this man's going to come in here and ask me if I know what I'm doing? Who does he think he is? But notice how Christ, all he does is point back to the miracles. He actually referencing an Old Testament passage of Scripture. He points to the miracles. He says, just remind John again of the things that are happening, the things that you're seeing and are hearing. And then, amazingly, he pronounces this blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended or not caused to stumble by me. The idea, it's almost like he's apologetic. I know that he's not. But it's almost like he recognizes that the, the infinite condescension, the, the height from which he's come, and the depth to which he's come is so lowly that he recognizes it. And he says, please don't be offended by my person. Look at the works and let them convince you. And then in verse 7 and following, he actually goes on to praise John the Baptist. It's like he knew that the people around him would be, all of a sudden begin to question the validity of the ministry of John. And he won't allow them. Don't dare question John. Among those born of women, there's none greater than John. Christ doesn't give words to defend himself. He doesn't promote himself. We have no record of him boiling. His, his pride is not erupting under the surface. He doesn't have smoke coming out of his ears. He points to the works. Another one, Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now compare that with Matthew 9, 6. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. A word spoken against Christ can and will be forgiven. Now think about this. How would you respond if someone walked up to you and directly, offensively spoke to you in a derogatory manner? Again, even if you had the restraint to not say anything out loud, I would imagine you would take a little offense. You would perhaps begin to hold a grudge. Maybe over time. All you would ever know of that person is, well, this one time they said this to me. Now, I can't help but think that even if they apologized, even if they said they didn't mean it, in the back of my head I would always remember that they actually said that, and it came from somewhere. But not Christ. Not the Lord Jesus. If you've ever spoken a word against Christ, like you're in Moses, Aaron and, and Miriam did against Moses. If you've ever done that, but you come back to him in repentance, he says it's forgiven. He leaves it up to the prerogative of God, his Father, who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. He just forgives. Matthew chapter 16. Verses 22 and 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, we often focus on Peter here, but notice what he says. He turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He is literally, you, you know the story, Christ is at this point literally defending his right to die in the place of sinners. And he, at this point, like his entire life, is so resigned, selflessly resigned to the prerogative of God that anyone who was not in line with what God was doing was a hindrance to his work. Now notice he's not a doormat. And he's not weak. He is ferociously defending his right to obey his Father. And anyone not on board with that will be left behind. We have other texts where he works to conceal his identity. Matthew 17, 9. They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. His glory on that mountain shining forth unlike anything anyone had ever seen. He only took three disciples and those three as they're coming down, he says, keep your mouth shut about this. I don't need to be promoted. I don't need, I don't need you to advance my glory. Just keep it quiet. Mark chapter 1. 
verse 34. He's healing people. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He doesn't need the demons to promote him. He don't, he don't allow them to vocalize his true identity. They knew him more than anyone. They had known him longer than anyone. But he doesn't need them to go about telling who he is. He doesn't need the demons. In verses 43 to 45 of that chapter, he heals a leper. And it says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Again, we see his miraculous power to heal, and yet he submits to the law of Moses. He doesn't heal this leper and say, Now listen, you're with me. I, you've been healed by the lawgiver. You've been healed by the one Moses saw on the mountain. Don't worry about the law. It's okay. Just tell them you're with me. If anybody says anything, just tell them the lawgiver dealt with me, and I don't need to, to submit to those rules. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't lay any claim to personal authority. He submits himself to the law of Moses and actually commanded others to submit to the law. And as his fame begins to spread, he spends even more time in desolate places. Now how many men do we know who've gotten a little bit of fame, a little bit of notoriety, and they just use that as collateral to keep rolling it over and piling up their fame to get greater and greater levels of fame? But not Christ. He didn't have the desire to be the crowd favorite. He got nothing from that. Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He would not allow them to reveal his identity. Mark chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. Peter makes the right confession. And he says, very good. Now, don't say anything. Over and over and over, he's forbidding. He's working against, refusing to be set up like a celebrity. Why? Because he was resigned to the providence of God to glorify him in his way and in his time, specifically in his death resurrection, and ascension. He did not need word of mouth. In Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, we read these words. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. He wept over the city. How many times had Jesus preached in Jerusalem and in this area? How many times had he been rejected, threatened? How many times had they plotted and tried to entrap him so that they could kill him? Now think, how would you view these people if they had treated you like this? Would your pride be wounded? Would you be ready to call down fire from heaven? Would you be ready to say, I've had enough. These people deserve everything that's, everything that's coming to them. They deserve it. Our Lord had every right and the authority and the power to destroy this city like he destroyed Sodom for their consistent and violent opposition against him. And yet, he wept, sobbed violently over these people because he desired their salvation. It wasn't about personal offense. He was sorrowful over their condition. Luke 23. In verse 28, there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him, but he turned to them. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Imagine it. He is carrying his cross to the place of his execution. Beaten beyond recognition. Marred beyond human semblance. Carrying his own cross. And he would not allow them to mourn for him. He didn't say, yeah, yeah, you, you should cry. You should feel real bad about how they're treating me. He realized that the trial was wrong, illegal. He realized I'm the son of God, right? You know that I haven't done anything wrong. Pilate said it over and over again. I haven't done anything worthy of death. Yeah, you should cry. You should feel bad about the way that they're treating me. He didn't say that. He, he can't help but show concern for them. Verses 39 to 43 of this same chapter. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, or said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now we know that at one point both of these criminals had been railing at him, but this one changes his tune and he acknowledges Christ. We, we could say that he 
from whichever side he was on, he turned and he looked unto Jesus and with no questions asked, he is saved. He didn't, we don't read that he said, Lord, remember me, Jesus, remember me. And then Jesus responds by saying, you know, it's, it's really going to be hard for me to remember anything except for all of those really hurtful things you said about me. And the Lord doesn't take his last few breaths to really hammer this man about how he had spoken really harshly and the things that he done that he had said were just really offensive and he should really consider the way that he, he's treating people. None of that. The thief looked and it was done. Christ said, in effect, you're mine. It's all forgiven. Another passage. I won't read the whole thing, but John, John 21, where the Lord effectively restores Peter after having denied him three times. Now, many of us would have taken this opportunity to say, now, Peter, I hate to say it, but I told you so. And Peter, you need to learn to listen to me. Peter, we've been through this over and over, and you've got a problem with just listening. I know what I'm talking about. You think I'm stupid, but I'm actually pretty smart. And I, I feel like by now, you should understand and acknowledge that I'm right, and that most of the time, you're wrong. He had every right to rebuke Peter. He had the authority to rebuke Peter. But he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We see the Lord Jesus is not a doormat. He doesn't allow it to go unaddressed. But at the same time, he knew that Peter had been brought low. And so he in meekness restores Peter. As you read through the Gospels, one of the great markers that I think point to the meekness of Christ is his usage of the word must. I call it the, the divine authoritative must. The word must in these references means essentially because the Father has determined it. Because the scriptures say so. Because this is what God has decreed. And when we see that authoritative must, we're reminded that our Lord in his earthly ministry was completely resigned to the will of his Father. Even from age 12, Luke 2, 49, he said to him, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house or about my Father's business? I must. I'm resigned Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 43. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was resigned to the purpose of his father. Now again, for, for us, we have these, if we had these options presented before us, stay around people who obviously have venerated you. They're flattering your ego. They, they're hanging on your words. They want you to be around. You can stay and hang out with them or you can travel on to other towns where they're more than likely not going to receive you. Which do you pick? 
Most of us would say, I think I'll just hang out with the people who appreciate the things I have to say, but not Christ. He says, I'm resigned, that there is a plan laid out before me from the foundation of the world that I must continue. He wasn't here for himself. He was here for the glory of God. Matthew 26, 53, and 54. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He had the authority to call down angels. He had the power. We, we could probably imagine that all of the angels were standing at attention, ready and waiting to come and help him. He would have been justified based on how they had treated him to wipe out the entire planet in a single instant. But he calmly, selflessly resigned himself to the will of his Father as recorded in the Scriptures. It must be so. Over and over, when the Lord is accused, you, you'll find that He either refers to the Scriptures or He will ask questions to reveal truth. But never once does He make a, a purely selfish defense based on His status or His, his divine rights. In Mark chapter 3, the, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons He cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How dare you even suggest that I, the holy, blameless, undefiled Son of God, is possessed by the devil? Well, that's not what he says. He says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, think about it. How offended do we get in these days if we gather for worship and we see that people either directly or indirectly accuse us of being unloving or foolish or rebellious or careless or ignoring the facts or ignoring science and hopefully these accusations are very far from reality but how often do we feel like we have to defend ourselves defend our viewpoint defend our ministry defend our plans how dare you say such things we Christ appealed to general human reasoning no self-defense no self-promotion. He simply says, in effect, have you not considered the reality? The Lord Jesus is meek. He displayed a calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God in His time and in His manner to deal justly in all things. Is Jesus Christ not wonderful? As we read these texts, text after text after text, it, can you not see that he's simply amazing? Can you imagine spending time with this man? Husbands, as you read this, 
Don't you crave to be like him? Don't you realize how much your wife would adore a man like this? Wives, don't you crave to be like Christ and recognize how much your husband would delight to have a wife who is meek like this? Can you not see how this man is like no other? And there is none who is like him. We, we have never seen anything like him before. There's never been another one like him. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This one alone has the authority to open the scroll and to break its seals. And we see that he is like a lamb, meek. Now, examine your own heart. How often have you acted contrary to this kind of meekness? How often, if perhaps you didn't act, but how often has your mindset, the thoughts of your heart and your mind been contrary to the meekness of Christ? I think this is just one of many areas where we see that the beauty of the Lord Jesus is so contrary to our own vile hearts, our own corrupt proclivities. It seems very simple. It's just a four-letter word, meek. But how far, how, how broad of an expanse does this short word separate us from the Lord Jesus? I would encourage you with four more texts. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In meekness, he submitted to suffering and death. He said in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And he even told Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In the cross of Christ, as he drank down the cup of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. We see our king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, king of kings and lord of lords, in calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God, knowing fully convinced that in God's time and in God's manner he would deal justly in all things. The cross of Christ reminds us that God 
has dealt justly with your sin and with my sin. Justice has been served in the body of Christ. Think upon the Lamb hanging as slain. Examine yourself and your relationship to that Savior. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. He does not have to bend justice. He does not have to go contrary to the law because in His own body He bore our sins on the tree. 